0: It's one long take care of, you know, from the beginning. Uh, uh, that, uh, when babies are born, we're so excited about it, and they need so much care, all the way to the end. One of the things I wanted to talk about, I read it this morning, I'm still quite stunned by it, is the story of, uh, probably you read it, it was in last Sunday's New York Times magazine, about the experience it uh, uh Memorial Hospital in New Orleans that was during Katrina.? Huh? That was amazing. It was an amazing yeah. article. I want to talk about it in a little bit because it's it leaves it leaves the mind just it's amazing. It's amazing. good. I'm glad a couple of people read it because I didn't want to, I, I had trouble finishing it. It's so painful, but and and so human. I'll tell you how I wanted to get around to talking about it. ...getting up to talking about it... Oops. ...we'll start from a lighter end. I wanted to talk about paying attention. We talked last week about... Um, ...about really seeing what's true right in front of us... ...about having the instructions for life... ...right in front of us if we pay attention... I told the story, maybe I'll get up to it later and tell it briefly today, of uh, uh, having been privy to a man having a heart attack. While, while I was in France a month ago, a man fell down dead right in the middle of paying for his lunch in the grocery store <laughs> in the small town that I live in. And uh, it was somehow such a stunning experience. It's de- and I, I've had three close friends die in the last two years. So... Uh, it's not that death is so surprising, but my three friends that died in the last couple of years died of terrible illnesses where they were in awful pain. And by the time they got up to dying, their death, although it was sad, it, it wasn't the death that was sad. It was the illness that was sad and the pain that was sad and the misery that they had and the fact that their lives were abbreviated. But the fact that they were dying was not so sad at the moment. We were all relieved about it. I told somebody that the other day. And they said, you actually were happy. I said, well, you know, I wasn't... I was very unhappy that they died, that they were sick. But I was relieved that they were no longer laboring with every breath. How many people have been at the end of a life with a person? A lot of people. And there's a way in which you know it's going to happen... And then it happens, and it's sad, but it's a, a it's a grace in some way. The struggle has ended. But he was a man paying for his lunch in the middle of his lunch. Means that one second before he wasn't planning to die. He was planning to eat lunch, and and uh, somehow it struck me as so startling that I, I think that we I have in my mind. I I don't think about it this way all the time, but. I think we imagine that we have some time at this moment. I don't know when my time is, uh, whether it's tomorrow or five years from now or ten years from now or whenever, but I don't think it's the second. But it could be. But if I thought it was five minutes from now, I'd, you know, I'd think, what do I have to say, what's left to say, who do I have to say it to? And I was thinking about it I, when this person fell to the floor and paramedics came and everybody was taking care of him I thought about what was he thinking the last thing and what had he done this morning uh, what pieces had he left unfinished had he left pieces unfinished and if I knew really really knew because we none of us know this I don't know this as well that it could be today and I say this now And I feel sort of relaxed about saying it because I don't think it's that this afternoon is my time, but I don't know. If I really got it that I don't know and I don't know for anybody else, I would be so much more awake all of the time and not wasting any single moment of it. And I think seeing much more clearly the truth about everything all the time, including that you don't know when's your time, but... In addition, the truth that there's nothing that's absolutely as consoling as connection and loving people. There's nothing that actually erases the truth that death is omnipresent if not on your doorstep, somebody else's, except some connection of warmth, some meaningful interchange that's happening. You know, there was... um, From time to time, I think about the... uh, uh, cartoon that my friend Guy Armstrong carries around with him and often teaches from at retreats. It's a cartoon. It's a trip taken. It's got three pictures in it. And the first one is um, a reptile, some, something that looks like an alligator, some amphibious animal uh, emerging from the sea and crawling onto dry land. And you can see in its thought bubble, it's thinking, um, eat Uh, Eat, live, propagate. Eat, live, propagate. It's creeping out of the water. Mm -hmm. And in the next picture of the three, you see um, monkeys up in the tree, more advanced life forms, presumably, up in a tree and swinging around. And they're thinking, eat, live, propagate. Eat, live, propagate. And then in the third picture, you see a human being sitting on a rock, looking out at the sea, thinking... Why are we here? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: That philosophy doesn't happen until you get up to here. That that who knows, I don't know, maybe the sheep go around saying to each other, how did we get here? But you think that derivative thought like that, how did we get here? What are we supposed to do here? What do we do here if we know that it's finite? Why should I learn a third language? What good is that going to do me? Or why should I lose another five pounds? Or what's the point of you know, brushing my teeth? Or anything else? You know? why, why should I do that? Life is fi- Not only is it finite, but you don't know when, they, when the finite is. You don't know if it's tomorrow or next year. We're always preparing as if there's a lot of time left. What would happen if we really paid attention to we don't know? You know, it's interesting. Uh, a friend of mine, who uh, is the um, president of the Marine Council of Aging, actually, I asked a group of people at a um, gathering not so long ago. All the people that were there having dinner together were all over 70, but all in, apparently, visibly in good health. He said, what would you do? if you knew that you had another 20 years of um, reasonable enough health and sound of mind, what would you do? And it was such an interesting question because I think, and um, alas, not enough people picked it up to continue it as a topic, but I've had it on my mind since then. I keep saying it to people. What would I do if I thought another 20 years? I I already told you a piece of it. You let me know what I'm... (laughs) But I'm not at the top of my game, and as long as I'm at the top of my game, I'll probably do this because it's the best game I know. But uh, but maybe I'd start... Yesterday I made up and in, in another group, I said, maybe I'll make up something. If I knew for sure another 20 years, maybe I would get a bunch of people to found a uh, Peace Corps, a local Peace Corps. I don't want to go to a, a, a distant place... I have too much family around here to go to a distant place. And I need to go to the dentist too frequently. I can't go to a distant (laughs) place. Uh, There are just things that older people can't do that they used to do. I have to be within shooting distance of my dentist and my doctor and and my family. But what if there were a Bay Area Peace Corps made up of uh, people over 70? Well, people over 65, for sure, or over 70... ...who sign up for two years, like for a Peace Corps, and get a stipend of $200 a month... ...and get an assignment that they then go to work five days a week that I would go to some, some, some school... ...where they need uh, reading teachers in the third grade and teach, teach third graders to read for a very minimal stipend. They'll pay just my, my gas money to get there or something get a whole, get a 1,000 people, 2,000 people, 3,000 people in the Bay Area volunteering five days a week, and every second week on Friday afternoon, you meet with your local teaching group to compare stories. You spend two years of public service like AmeriCorps, but instead of AmeriCorps when you're 17, or Conservation Corps when you're 22, uh, Old Age People Corps, Doing something. But so, and first of all, I'm interested in how many people would do that. I would do that.
2: Do you think that's a great idea?
0: But Vista, but Vista has young people too. My aunt joined it when she was 78. 78, but they also have young people. Yeah, I'm thinking of one that's particularly for old people because then they have their own particular ways of figuring things out. Old people have their own needs. You know?
2: <laughs>
0: anyway, but but isn't that a great idea, Ross? Thank you. Maybe I'll do that for the so next 20 why, why wait? Why, why wait? This is very interesting. Maybe something else will come out of this class than I thought. But <laughs> the, the 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 reason that I thought about the, the question at the time is I, th- I realized that at the time I had in mind, well, this mm-hmm. is it. This is my final career, and when I finish doing this one, they won't do it because my mind had not thought another 20 years of health, but maybe another 20 years of health. You don't know. So you don't realize what you're missing by not actually having your... That vista's a good word. Your vista's wide enough, letting things in. What do you not notice? I got to thinking about this, and this is where I actually wanted to start, from a story in the newspaper that was then on the... uh, Susan sent me this, actually. It's a story about... In the Washington, D.C. metro station on a cold January morning in 2007, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. Do you know this story? Yeah, everybody. Yes, how many people know it? How many people don't know it? I'll read a little bit more. (laughs) During that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing He slowed his pace and hurried for a few seconds. He slowed his pace, stopped for a few seconds, and then hurried to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat, and without stopping, continued to walk. At six minutes, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. At ten minutes, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged at him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. At 45 minutes, the, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $32. At one hour, he finished playing, and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. (laughs) This is a really shocking story when you think about it. Two days before, Joshua Bell had sold out the theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100. This is a true story. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the metro station was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and people's priorities. The question raised, in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty, do we stop to appreciate it, do we recognize talent in an unexpected context? One possible conclusion reached from this experiment is this. If we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written with one of the most beautiful instruments ever made, how many other things are we missing? So I wanted to tell you that story. First of all, because Susan sent it to me. Second of all, because I think that what the theme of what's been on my mind is what am I missing that's important? Given that time is short, a certain amount of time, given my faith that if I understood, really understood deeply enough that there is no moment to spare to mortgage to resentment and bitterness and revenge and sulking, that I haven't got a moment to spare, and I'm not quite there yet. I know that in some moments, wow, when that man fell to the floor and I was waiting across the street because my husband had gone among the people who were trying to revive him. And I sat across the street and I watched that whole scene and I thought about wonder what he was thinking before. I thought about, I wonder if he had grudges unhealed or if he had just had a bad interchange with somebody. And I realized... I haven't got a moment, moment to spare. You have a grandson, so you have a granddaughter here also. Okay. So we'll do it at the end. Can they wait? She all right? Yeah. Okay. Here's my thesis. If I really, really got it, that things happen because they happen, way beyond my understanding of why, because there's so many things that make everything happen, that there shouldn't be anything that I shouldn't that I meet without saying, Well, I guess this is happening to you know, praise be. How can I meet this moment without resentment and without bitterness? How to live Susan ends her email by saying, Stay amazed. I wanna say 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 stay grateful, stay celebratory. I am very always buoyed up by the thought of some woman. Whose name is often mentioned, but I can't remember it, in Dharma talks. I think she was a Japanese Dharma t- teacher who died in Asia. So I don't, no one here that I knew who died, whose final words, presumably, were, Thank you very much, I have no complaints. Yeah. You know? <laughs> who, of us, who of us could say anything like that? And besides, it would be great to have no complaints that was a great ride. Thank you very much. I had a good time. It wouldn't do any good anyway to say it was mostly good except for this, that, and the other no. thing wasn't good. That wouldn't be good. I didn't like going to visit your mother every Sunday. Other than that, it would be all right. I mean, that bitterness has no place in anybody's mind, and especially not when when people die. They say to each other, I love you. I love you, too. When you come on the other side, think about us. When you're on the other side, I'll think about you. At that point... (laughs) But the other piece of this that I really wanted to remember was what else do we not notice that's right in front of our face? That's so interesting. I told that story yesterday to my friends with whom I was meeting. And one of my friends, um, Lou Richmond, who's come and taught here, Mm. Lou Richmond, who's a musician said, I would have stopped. He said, I would have stopped because I would have known to stop. I would have recognized, yeah.
2: I, I just, I heard you tell the story before, and it occurs to me that there's, there's two other ways of looking at it, one of which is not so cheerful, and the other of which really fits into your theme. So the, the one that is not so cheerful is... Maybe Joshua Bell isn't all that wonderful. We have to be told that it's wonderful. You know, and it's wonderful. The, the other way of looking at it, the third way, is perhaps the ordinary background music that we turn the radio on and don't pay any attention by the unknown musician is just as, as wonderful. Or you put it in, a, I think, a, an easier metaphor to see uh, perhaps the flower that's blooming out in the yard is just as wonderful as the prize orchid that gets on the front page of the, the horticulture magazine. And I you don't uh, notice
0: the ordinary. I think that's so. To remind me of your name, Lee. Lee. I think that's such an important point. I wrote down other instances where you know where what what people tell you this is great. Oh, this is great, or they say it's not great, and. Uh, I was thinking about how we pay attention or not paying attention, and maybe it becomes great, not because it's great, but because we're paying attention. Mm -hmm. And it might also be great. It might also be Joshua Bell. At the wedding on Saturday that I was, where these two lovely young people married each other, there was a string quartet playing. String quartet was playing in the background. They were playing as the people seated themselves for the wedding they were, they were playing, uh, uh, the, the music was lovely. They were playing very well, and it was really an amazing task because uh, you may remember that Sunday the temperatures were tremendously hot. This was out in Sonoma. They were sitting in the middle of an open backyard wedding in the blazing sun, playing away, wearing black shirts as musicians do, and it was really quite beautiful, and nobody was much listening. You know, they're just playing away. And the ceremony started, and they played during the ceremony at different parts quite beautifully. But they were places where something was happening, and the flower girls were walking in or something, and everybody was looking at the flower girls, ooh. But they're still not very much recognizing the musicians. They're just marking the time. And then the, the uh, ceremony was over, and the people adjourned to the reception afterwards. And before they sat down at tables, there was a period of milling, you know, that period of milling, People are milling and serving hors d'oeuvres, and again the quartet is sitting in the middle of it, playing away, and no one is listening to them at all. And I stood there for a while. I listened to them because I felt badly about the nobody listening to them. And they finished something. and I talked to them about who was the composer, and they liked that that I talked to them a little bit. But who I you know, one of them could have been Joshua Bell. You know, they could have been anybody. They sounded very good, but it's the attention that you bring to them. Or the expectation that you had. Years ago, really decades ago, Joan Sutherland isn't living anymore. Joan Sutherland was singing in the, in San Francisco at the opera. And she was singing, it was either the student prince or the daughter of the regiment or some role that required enormous virtuosity to be able to sing that whole range of of notes. It's a very flamboyant operetta and it's uh, so it's fun to watch and it's got all these tremendous lyrical songs and everybody's all dressed up and it's an impossible story that couldn't be true and uh, and it's a great crowd pleaser and uh, I, I think it was when it wasn't it Pauline Kale who was writing for the uh, mm-hmm. who was writing for, who was writing reviews for the for The Chronicle or for the Pacific Sun at the time I think. And um, a long time ago, uh, wrote a long review of what was the matter with it. You know, this wasn't good, that wasn't good, this wasn't good, this was overdone. Tenor wasn't good, this wasn't good. Joan Sutherland wasn't good, nothing was good. The whole thing, long review, nothing was good. And the last line of the whole review at the bottom was, the audience loved it, you know. (laughs) And... And I had been there, actually, and I loved it. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I was so busy enjoying the spectacle and enjoying the fact that Joan Sutherland has such a magnificent voice and whatever. So it's really the point of view that you bring to it, whether you're the critic who's going to talk about it or you're the person who thinks, this is far out. This is probably the last time Joan Sutherland's going to sing publicly, and I'm seeing it. So I'm not sure it's the event. I'm sure it's the yeah. eye that, and the mind. That come to the event, and the corollary of that is, if you brought a great mind to any event, it would be wonderful. How many people here have cried at a nativity play at Christmas time? Particularly because it's your grandchild that's tripping in with the paper (laughs) wings, or it's somebody else's child that's tripping over the dragging wings, or, or tripping over the some piece of furniture or something. It's so touching. It's not the most magnificent play in the world, but we're touched by, we bring a mind that's appreciative. You were going to say something.
3: Yeah, I was going to say that the, the context of being in a subway or in a public place where the business of life is going on, and then there's a musician that's playing, Um, is so different from being at a wedding where you're sort of talking. But but that scene that you described always just stops my heart because it is an unusual thing to be in the subway intent on going somewhere and then there's somebody singing or somebody playing a horn or in this case this famous musician. And what was interesting to me was that the children wanted to stop. Mm -hmm. And that you know we're all busy and we have to keep going, we have a schedule, but the children knew. And so to have that kind of mind, the child knows mm-hmm. what's
1: unusual and poignant
0: and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's a, very, that's a very lovely point about the child is not all consumed with I have to get to a certain place and fulfill. I have to get all the things on my to-do list to do, which are all things that would fall away if you suddenly knew today is the last day of my life.
2: It is not that
0: important to get your eyeglasses adjusted. If that's Nancy. Yeah, I think there's another
3: piece of what we pay attention to. And I especially notice that, like, in home with hospice work or with my friend Kathy who just died last week, um, we don't pay attention to all the sort of violations of sound that come along. So I think there becomes a cultural numbing um, so that it takes a lot of extra attention. If we could pay more attention to what's in there that we could like turn off the radio or turn off the television, put on some beautiful music, we would heighten our ability all the time to pay attention. And mm-hmm. instead we teach ourselves to not pay
2: attention, mm-hmm. to shut out all the collateral.
0: That's a, that's actually an important point too. What were you going to say? I've... Yeah, I, I'm
2: going to say something that fits this very neatly. I, I, I'm afraid, I, I, my wife and I have had the good fortune to work with some very fine musicians and musical teachers. And Years and and I owe it to my friend to make this point. <laughs> we have allowed our acoustical environment to become incredibly degraded. And so we are constantly in situations where someone has, for instance, in an airport where someone has left a television on and then there are three other people in, on the phone in the same environment. So we are acoustically, um, we've destroyed our, our our, play, our public spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, if you land mm-hmm. at the Narita Airport in Japan, mm-hmm. you will be shocked because it is like a library. I and mean, it is wow. absolutely amazing. Even the luggage comes out quietly. <laughs> 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 yeah. So what I want to say, my first point is that through all of this, through all of this, academy, we almost always have a musical continuo being played on very poor speakers, often very beautiful music, often music that means a great deal to us from our youth. But this continuum of recorded music uh, does numb us in a terrible way and that the, the way to appreciate music, first of all and foremost of all, is to go either to a person or to stop in the subway and hear someone with the flame of godliness communicating through that medium. Uh, and we need to turn off the records and turn off the iPods and hear it again as its real godly voice.
0: I feel everybody's, you know, if we were in one of those congregations where people said, Amen, <laughs> Amen brother, they'd say it. <laughs> I think, yeah, go ahead.
3: thought about my life and thought about how incredibly lucky I was and um, had a great meal and went to bed and when I woke up in the morning, the sound of the birds crying made me sob. It was so, the birds waking up made me sob. It was so beautiful. And I looked out my window at the garden and like global warming was gone. Yeah. it, all, all these horrible things that are happening in the world were gone. I was so stunned by the beauty of what was there. Mm-hmm. And I thought about all the people that I have resentment towards or I have done behaved badly with. And it was very clear to me I could go to every one of them and make peace. Mm-hmm. Then um, I had all the tests and I got staged. And I didn't need any treatment. And... Who knows when I will feel sick, and I keep thinking about those people, and I can't go to them. Huh. Mm-hmm. I can't make that peace, huh.
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I, I'm very perplexed by that.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you are you well now? Are you being treated for something? Are you no you you well.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad.
3: Very finite, limited time left that made it seem possible to approach Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That, that's totally what it was. It is, mm-hmm. it is very perplexing to mm-hmm. me that I I could see all that and experience all that in in that frame of mind, and now I can remember it clearly. But mm-hmm. even if I bring attention to it, it's not. The same, and that—that I mean, I can look outside and say it is gorgeous, but global warming is still there. Mm -hmm. I can think about those people, and what I—I remember what I would have said to them. But there's something that makes me go, "Yeah, well, when
1: the time comes."
0: (laughs) You know, tell me your name, Laura. You know, Laura, I think that that's really the dilemma. Point that we all live in that in those moments where we realize this is a precious life for which I am grateful for this very moment and and want nothing more but a completely contented and open heart in it then we we, we have those moments but then because of something that's woken us up to the fact that this might be that moment where we find out it's now and then the life creeps in, and it says, "Well, you have time for one more little grudge, uh, <laughs> one more little, one more little resentment, or one more little self-centered stuff." I don't know why that is, but it is. As it's a, it's a perverse kind of a thing, isn't it? But you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do two things because we have a baby to bless this morning, and she came, you know, a little bit out of the sequence, so we have to. We're gonna stop in a few minutes and do our baby blessing. But it's connected to the rest of what I wanna talk about. First I said two things before. I said if I really I said to my group yesterday, if uh, what will I teach if my whole thing that I have to teach is that peace is possible? And someone said, Well you could teach the, the, the path of the Four Noble Truth of the Fourth Noble Truth, all the ways of encountering that peace. And don't worry about it, you'll teach the fourth noble truth forever. A lot of things to say, you won't run out of things. But it really, it really, it really, uh, it, it picks up from that point. What do we do to keep the mind awake, so that it stays in that place of peace and expansiveness and lovingness and completely non-attached to its own personal little? You know, I don't want to do it yet, or whatever. What keeps us really awake enough to make the right choice all the time? How do we keep that vision? In mind, and I think that's what practice is about. I think what meditation is about. The what I wanted to talk about with uh, because it is about life and death, and maybe we just have a few minutes to mention it, so I'll, I'll call it to your attention and you maybe Google it and bring it up. It's in last Sunday's New York Times, and it's a story about the hospital in uh, New Orleans, which was the uh, it, which you probably all read about Memorial Hospital where it had very, very sick people at a public hospital, the sickest people, the poorest people, the people on with catastrophic illness on life support, a tremendous number of people in a horrendous several-day scenario in which the power got cut off and uh, nothing worked and the heat was incredible and people were dying and the helicopters and other rescue vehicles that were supposed to come and uh, evacuate the people from that hospital were less and less. And the nurses and the doctors on on duty, you read this and you cry, were beyond words trying to, uh, day and night, pushing themselves to carry people on stretchers up and down flights of stairs and with no working elevators and And it seems as if, in the end, there were some patients who could not get evacuated in time (coughs) to whom certain physicians and nurses um, gave uh, doses of sedative morphine and uh, Ativan enough to end their lives in a peaceful way. They're what people... uh, they're, They're what keep people alive and uh, not in agony. In, in Hospice allows people to have drugs that keep them not not, that don't end their lives, but keep them not agonized until the end. But those are drugs that if you give a little bit more of, the end of the life arrives. So there's a question afterwards about if these doctors actually knowingly, knowing that they were about to be evacuated and there was no way that these terminally ill, often comatose people were going to be evacuated rather than have them agonize, gave them, perhaps gave them a lethal dose, or enough of a dose of these sedatives to end their lives. And what happened afterwards in terms of uh, inquests, and anybody knows all this story or read it? And grand juries and inquests and people telling their experience? In the end, the doctor that was indicted, a woman doctor, uh, was indicted on ten counts and ultimately found not guilty on all ten counts. Um, but a lot of a lot of feeling about what was, what what's right and what's not right, and uh, uh, maybe it's good that I mention it now because uh, even that we don't have time to talk about it a lot, uh, because I thought. It, and however you think about it, I can't imagine that person's um, dilemma to be in that position, to be the physician in charge at that point, and to have to make that, that call, which is so antithetical to everything that people do to. And in the end, uh, I, I, I think it was probably public sentiment that convinced the, uh, the jury to find her not guilty on all those calls, calls because there were, were lots of toxicology reports that suggested that maybe it did happen, that they had overdoses. And what we'll to think about that, and particularly because next week is the, uh, the week of ethics and morality and uh, precepts and the, and, the, and the precept to, uh, undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. And what would have been harm in that case and what would have been not harm? Ethics is a very interesting conversation. Earlier this week I was in conversation with someone who, um, as a member of um, a religious order, part of the Catholic Diocese of uh, San Francisco, Marched in a right to life march some time ago. The same time, and she said she was very interested and touched by the fact that there were so many people there, the marchers with their placards, and there are the protesters of the marchers with their placards. And she also stood outside stands routinely outside of San Quentin when there's an execution. Uh, because she is opposed to the death penalty, and there are people standing with placards, and she also marches in the gay pride parade, because she feels that it's it's important for people to be able to. They have a everyone has a right to a life as who they are, and there are people with placards standing, and she marches in anti-war parades because she thinks that war is an incorrect act. Okay, baby. Don't go, Freya. Don't go, Freya. Come on. Claire, it's okay. Is it the changing that she needs? Okay, we'll wait. So it's a very complicated question to say if you really, really are in favor of preserving life. What do you think about that? You know uh, These are hard questions. Um, they're really hard questions. I actually think and this is a, I won't, and if, uh, if Richard doesn't come next week, I will. but uh, I think about uh, taking the precepts. I think that taking the precept about behaving in an ethical or moral way is taking the precept to think it over. It came to my mind because we were talking about the hospital in New Orleans where these people have become physicians in order to preserve life and health. And what is the precept about, uh, you know, when do you make a decision? Do you ever make a decision to hasten an inevitable end? Uh, And when is that a good decision? And in certain states you can do that now. And what do we think about that? That I think when I take the, the precepts, I'm taking the precept to think about uh, on a case-to-case basis. Not, don't tell me a rule. Tell me, what, tell me the rules about what to think about because it'll be different all the time. And it comes back again by not clinging to fixed views. The pure-hearted one is not born again into this world. I always think that means not born again into the world of being trapped in a suffering state <clears throat> and trapped in, being born again into a world where we can say thank you and be grateful. Why don't you tell us the baby's name well, and her can, mother?
1: I, I, I want to make a comment about the meditation and the peace is possible. Yeah. I, I found that to be... I had a wonderful experience with that. And uh, because I got... First of all, my thing, my ticker tape that ran across the bottom of my screen really slowed down, like into slow motion as I came to that place of peace as possible. And then slowing down enough to recognize that it's not the peace that ends wars or the peace that makes me have a you know, troubling relationship. But it's way, permeates all peace, so it's below that and around that. And that's the piece that, of course, will eventually change things, mm-hmm. but it was very profound mm-hmm. for
0: me. I, I think that's the piece that doesn't remember about global... It remembers about global yeah. warming, but it isn't... It, it, it contains global warming. Yeah, it contains, this is the piece that yeah. does something about global warming. Mm-hmm. This is the one that says, hmm, global warming, what yeah. do I do now? And In it, the, but it does that from a place of balance.
1: And hmm. that would... Way well, you can make wise decisions. Yeah. You know, I had a difficult week with my automobile and, and trying to maintain that space yeah. you know, because it, it was happening. Mm-hmm. So what do I want? What are my choices? The
0: two people that I married the other day said about each other that apropos of this, they said, you know, we have trouble sometimes. We've been together for a few years. They said, we have trouble sometimes and we have little tensions and little skirmishes sometimes. <coughs> but we have so far always remember that we're having a skirmish right so we should maybe uh take a walk around the block or go play the piano or do something for a while because at this moment we're having trouble remembering what is also true which is that we both love each other enormously and that the skirmish is true but the we both love each other enormously is bigger than the skirmish the
1: container, yeah, yeah. use,
0: use and i think that that's the whole thing that I, we love each other enormously. Ah, there's our baby for today. Is okay. So we have her mother and her grandmother. Her name is Freya Isabella, and she was
1: born on uh, July 1st. I have three sons and one beautiful grandson and now a granddaughter.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Here, Claire, come. Claire, come and sit down. Uh-huh. Oh. you can sit too. Do you want to sit too? Well, Roz, you come and sit also, and then he'll come. We'll all sit. Hey, you have red hair. Do you she have red hair? You have red hair? A little bit. Yeah. Are you, Are you cute?
3: Are you cute? Are you
0: beautiful? Well. Do you
1: have a camera? Oh, I do. You
0: have
1: all the She's two months. Oh, there you
0: go. You got a picture taker with your whole family. Freya, do you have a middle name?
1: Isabella. Freya,
0: Isabella. Look her little socks yes, have <laughs> faux straps on them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are so cute. Come and
1: sit. Come on. There you go.
0: There you go. There you go. Oh,
3: yeah.
0: So what would anybody like to... Uh, Offer Freya for a blessing. What would you like to say?
3: May you have tons of friends with a sense of humor. (laughs) May you have tons of
0: friends with a sense of humor. Amen. What else? May you be loved and know how to give love. May you be loved and know how to give love. Those can be your blessings too, okay? okay? What else? May you have good health all your life. May you know how to forgive. May you know how to forgive.
1: May you discover
0: your creativity. May you discover your creativity.
3: May you always stay curious.
0: May you always stay curious. Play, 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 play. May you play, 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 play. May you welcome the blessings of your older (laughs) brothers. May you welcome, welcome. Bless, the blessing of your brother and your whole family. May you live with an open heart and an open mind. May
3: you live with an open
1: heart and an open mind. Mm-hmm.
0: May you have fun. May you have fun.
1: Mm-hmm. What else? <coughs> May you continue May you have to have be belly laughs.
0: May you have <laughs> lots of belly laughs.
1: May you continue to communicate
3: whatever you
0: Is she communicating whatever she needs? She has a voice. Yeah. Is she fun? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Whenever I smile at her, she smiles at me.
0: That usually happens with people, you know, when you smile at them they smile at you back. Mm -hmm. All those people smiling at you. Will she go and sit on somebody else? Yes, you may. Yeah? I get to hold a little bit. Oh. Whoa. What a nice thing. What a nice thing. Look at all these people. Well, listen, Freya, you can come here anytime. And you can get a little older, and you can come to all our children's programs. Then you can come to our junior high school programs. (laughs) Then you can come to our high school programs. And you can come to our young adult programs. And you can come to everything. Everybody loves you. If we whisper, we can sing happy birthday so it won't be too loud. She's two months old. Let's do a quiet happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Freya, happy birthday to you. By the way, Freya's grandmother is Roz, who's here all the time, always takes pictures of other people's babies. Thank you very much, Claire, for coming.
3: Thank, Thank you. You. Thank you,
0: everyone. you know what? One of the things that I think is so wonderful is we spend so much time here talking about the really the, the, the essential existential truths about life that it passes so fast, that the end of it is so soon in sight, that the existential problem of what should we do with life is ever present, and the answer is always the center of what we're thinking about. When there's a new baby on the scene, what's the meaning of life goes out of your mind. So it's a relief from the question of what's the meaning of life and what should I do. At this moment, you rock the baby and you sing to it, and all those existential questions and the angst that comes with them disappear. So we are very grateful for you for making this baby and bringing it here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. you. (laughs) Please come again. And may we all. Until we meet again. Be free from all difficulty. Maybe we'll be happy. Maybe we'll be healthy. May our lives unfold smoothly with ease. And I'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you so much for that, baby.
3: Thank you.